If you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to it while on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital audio information and entertainment on the internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries Audible books in every genre imaginable business, classics, history, self development, just to name a few. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash replay and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's that easy. Currently, I am listening to the classic One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, Black Fish, Blue Fish, Old Fish, New Fish. Okay, that's、This、genius. Go to audible.com slash replay. That's audible.com slash replay and get started today. We have no video that, montage for you. That sounds like sort of doomsday music. They usually pick pretty interesting music. I can't identify what that is, though.、Huh? They used to do classic rock and roll when Walt and Carrie did their own show, and I said,、right. I'd like to update the music so it reflects that this conference is happening in this decade. And <laughs> I think they do a good job.、Right. Thank you for coming. My pleasure.、Um, we will go back in history a little bit and talk about your days at News Corp and creating <laughs> Hulu, but, but let's update people about what you're doing now. The way I view you, you. You do film, you do TV, you do online stuff. I'm particularly interested in, in that stuff. So let's start there.、Um, I think a lot of people here know that you're working with ATT. They've said they're going to give you or, or, or commit up to maybe more than $500 million to build something online. And beyond that, it's pretty vague. Can you sort of sketch out what you're doing now and what you might do? Yeah, this started、um, when we made that aborted、uh, attempt to buy Hulu. Two years ago, I guess just under two years ago.、Um, and I was looking for, during the process, we decided it would be valuable to have a partner and less for the capital than for distribution. I thought a distribution. So you and ATT bid together on、so、Hulu. So we bid together. So I went to Randall Stevenson and asked him if he was partnering. This was, I think, the second time Hulu was for sale. This was the second time. And,、uh, you know, what Randall said to me is he said, look, there's, there's nothing more important to us than video, and we'd love to partner with someone who has a background in it. We developed a pretty close relationship doing that. We all know how that bidding process ended, not happily for many of us. And、um, we kept talking to ATT. And I think that, look, I don't want to speak for ATT, but I think if you think about it, sort of post DirecTV, they will be arguably the largest video distributor in America between a combination、right. of MVPD subs, broadband subs, and mobile subs. And I think they have a, a genuine conviction. That a lot of this stuff is moving over the top, and they were looking to build an over the top company together. So, <clears throat> the structure we ultimately came up with was we own the majority of Crunchyroll, fairly significant SVOD player,、um, and we owned at that point 20% of Fullscreen. We put them together and sold a piece of it to ATT as a joint venture.、Right. And then, as part of that deal, they committed a bunch of additional capital. But when they say video is important to them, and I'm <clears throat> going to ask you to speak on their behalf, so what do you think that means?、Because $500 million or whatever they're going to spend with you is, is not actually significant for them.、Uh, well, what, what, is, what, is, what is working with you get them that they couldn't, you know, they, if they want to buy whatever they want to buy, they can go buy it, right? They've got a lot of assets. Yeah, I think that, first of all, so $500 million is the commitment in the deal. There's nothing, there's no stricture that says that they can't go, go further or both of us can't go further.、Um, and I think there's a genuine conviction that there's not that much left to buy. 
and that it probably makes more sense to build these things together right now. Um, so that's what we're so, that's so there was so, one big asset. Hulu was one big thing you tried to buy. Right. And, and so then we put those two things together. We then subsequently bought the rest of full screen. We've made some acquisitions since then. We bought Rooster Teeth recently. And you know, at this point, while it may not seem that much, it is one of the more significant over-the-top players. You know, we have six billion monthly views on on uh, the full screen side. We have hundreds of thousands of SVOD subscribers. And put together, we are, look, I'm, I'm under no illusions about mm -hmm. what it is or isn't, but it is one of the bigger over-the-top players, and we think that there are opportunities to grow that even further with AT&T and with their distribution. And some of this stuff is free, some of this stuff is subscription video. It looks like you <coughs> want a combination of those two things. How are you thinking about that mix? What do you think people want to buy? What do you think they only will watch for free? Well, I think that what you see people, I think so far what we're seeing is that Clearly, we know people are willing to buy high-quality, big general entertainment packages, but those are in the, at this point, hundreds of billions of dollars of programming costs. I mean, billions of dollars of annual programming cost. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing is that people want to buy highly targeted, passionate things for them. That's certainly the experience we're having in Crunchyroll, mm -hmm. is that it's, it's obviously a small category, but it's something that people are highly, highly how many, passionate about. How many about. people are subscribing to that? Well, we're not telling that. Right? Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? <laughs> no, hundreds of thousands. Right. Um, and growing, you know, it's just about doubled in size in the past year since we bought it. Um, I think the interesting question is, I think that what you're going to see, which is just beginning, is, you know, windowing has been fairly effective throughout almost every part of the video entertainment business, sort of the movie business, television business, etc. And I think you will begin to see some of that happening in digital. Certainly it's you know, it's what Jason, who I guess was up here earlier, yep. is trying to do. <clears throat> we certainly do a fair amount of it on Crunchyroll. You know, we have a paid site and we have a free site. Um, those are issues that we're thinking about all the time, and I think that there are ongoing opportunities to sort of think about how to window. You know, we are beginning, we've announced recently a full-screen movies effort. You know, we're sort of beginning to think about what's the TVOD opportunity there? Is, the th is there a theatrical opportunity there? When will they end up on the full screen site on YouTube? And sort of beginning to think about it. And I think it is a question of trying to figure out the ideal monetization and trying to figure out genuine value for consumers. You came from News Corp. You did help build up Fox and, and, and the associated cable channels. Big, broad <clears throat> reach. Um, it seems like a lot of the effort in, in online video is after a very narrow, targeted audience. I'm a big fan of... PewDiePie or Michelle Fan or someone, but maybe not the other stuff. Um, is that are you sort of reorienting your view around sort of niche programming and individuals versus big broad programs? No, I think first of all, you know, we were interested even in News Corp. We had lots of different activities. You know, we published tiny little books. Yep. We had you know obscure television shows, we had some obscure cable channels, and we obviously tried to do big blockbuster movies and shows, and I think this is no different. And I do think that, um, I think your question, uh, in my opinion, suggests a lack of appreciation for the reach of some of these YouTube celebrities. You know, we have... Oh, they're very big. <coughs> they're just not they as have, big as broadcast TV. Used well, they are much bigger than broadcast TV right now. You know, we have numerous, you know, I'll give you a good example. We have, I think, about 38 million views on Rooster Teeth every week. I don't think there's anything on broadcast television that's doing that many views. Fair enough. Right? Anything. So I think these are, you know, these are much broader properties than most people realize at this point. And, you know, you, you sort of think about the big YouTube players. They have much broader reach than anything on 
conventional television. They still seem in terms of the discourse, like if you go to VidCon, right, you get a sense right away of how visceral this is and how big a deal this is for, say, 12-year-olds. But, you know, I, I doubt most of the folks in this audience have heard of Rooster Teeth, let alone watched one of their videos. Um, whereas, again, when you were programming Fox, everyone knew what Married with Children was, even if they didn't watch the show. Oh, but I think that that, 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 that to me, I think is a demographic argument more than it is a reach argument. It just happens to be, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of shows we put on Fox in the early years right. that nobody had heard of, you know, and at that point it was a much younger demo network. Um, and I think that this is just a function of demographics. You know, the primary audience on YouTube is 15 to 30-year-olds, 15 to 25-year-olds. And so there may be people in this audience who have or haven't heard of it, but I don't think it's an indication of lack of reach. Or One of the things you did at Fox to help put Fox on the map, it's hard to remember, but there used to be three broadcast channels and Fox didn't exist. You guys went out and spent what at the time was an enormous amount of money to buy NFL rights, and that helped elevate Fox into a real network. Um, and I think a lot of people are waiting for big, significant sports events to move online only. Hasn't happened yet. Do you think it will happen? Yes. And yeah. what, when, what's the timeline for that, and why hasn't it happened yet? Well, I think that... <clears throat> I'm, I'm not sure what the timeline is, but there's clearly more money to be made online than there is out of those broadcast deals. I think that what... I think what you, you think there's not even a debate. I, I believe there is. You know, there's more money to be made on a subscription basis, targeted. They're global. There's almost zero distribution friction. Um, so I think there is more money to be made. I think that what the leagues are grappling with, and particularly the bigger leagues, are the breadth of their audience and those free national platforms. And how do they? But you know, look, 15 years ago, everybody said sports would never be on cable. You know, you'd never see the NFL or the NBA right. on cable, and you know they're all they're all over cable at this point. And I think you will see there's a inevitable evolution where these things will move to future distribution. And, and who do you think pushes that? Is that is that someone with enormous resources like a Google or Apple? Or are you going to be in a position to to bring some of this online? Well, I think that they will. It will be pushed by clearly someone with a big pay, pay you know, big checkbook. Um, and that's any number of people. You know, it's any number of the big tech companies, of the telcos. Of, you know, so there are a number of people who can do that. So Jason was on stage earlier. Um, maybe uh, Jason. May, maybe Jason. Um, he, he had a long career, interesting career at Hulu. You were a big advocate and early, early <laughs> proponent of Hulu. And we were dissecting a little bit sort of why Hulu worked and also why it didn't work. And it seems like it's the same answer, right? You had, you had a, a, a JV of, of media owners um, that made that thing possible because they brought their assets to the table and also were sort of fundamentally conflicted or seemed conflicted at the end, both with each other and with the model. Do you think if you'd stayed on at News Corp, Hulu would still have continued in the form it was in or have been more successful? Well, without, I think some of it would depend on who my partners were. I think that in the early days, uh, you know, I was there, I guess, for about two years, the first two and a half years of Hulu. And I don't think there were any conflicts. I think that Jeff Zucker, who was my partner at NBC, and I were big believers in it. There were a lot of people in my company who didn't believe in it, but I But you were their boss. But I basically said, too bad we're doing it. Yeah. Um, and Jeff did exactly the same thing at NBC, and Jeff deserves real credit for it. So I don't think that there was any conflict in those early years. And clearly, I would have, I believed in it. I believe that, I, and ironically, I think they believe in it deeply now, too. I think 
more recent conversations I've had with Rupert and with Chase, I think they're big believers in it. It seems like it's made a fundamental shift, though. It used to be you could watch whatever was on TV the next day, and now it's you can watch some of that maybe the next day, maybe eight days later. Also, you need to be a cable subscriber. It's a different kind of product. There is a little bit of that. For the most part, the, the content offering is still what it was. Yep. You know, the content offering is still what it was, and the, certainly the content offering on Hulu Plus is deeper than it was. So they, are, they will play with a few things, but not that much. Uh, we had the CEO of Warner Brothers up here earlier. I was asking him uh, um, how he's reacting and thinking about the Sony hack. Um, it's not directly analogous for you because you're not running a studio, but you are making movies, you are making TV shows that are, could be seen by wide audiences. Um, has the Sony incident made you pause or rethink any particular project you're making? My emailing? <laughs> um, no. No, there's nothing that you're worried about, no audience you're worried about offending or... I'm worried about potentially offending apes with the apes movies, but short of that, no. They look, they look pretty angry, yeah, those they, apes, too. But, but I think they come off pretty well. Yeah. And, and seriously, day to day, I mean, um, we're going to have Mark Cuban on later, who's got a uh, messaging app that he's going to advocate as a good use instead of email. Um, are, is there stuff you're now not putting in email because of this? You know, to be honest, I would say that about 5% of the time I hesitate, and then the most of it I forget, or I just keep doing my usual behavior, which hopefully is not particularly offensive, but... Did you look through, did you end up gawking at the, the Sony emails yourself? I looked at some of them, not many, and I, did, I don't think that it was responsible for all of those things to be published. We had Nick Denton on last night saying, no, no, I was exposing truth, I was showing you how Hollywood really works. You don't seem convinced. No. No, I think it's bullshit. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I think it was, it was fun for them. It was exciting, it was sensationalist, but I, I think it's a little bit harder to hide behind maintaining the integrity of journalism. And you're okay with sensationalism, right? I mean, you've done lots I, of I've had I've had some of it in my life. Yeah. Uh, um, but you're okay with attracting an audience for attracting audiences. Right. Like, not everything has to be high-minded stuff. No. There's no message really. No, I think, it's, I think it's, in that case, it's the mix of hiding behind journalistic integrity for what was essentially sensationalism. So when you left News Corp, you got a, a production deal that's, in, in a lot of cases, that's what an executive gets as a parting gift and no one really takes it seriously. But, but you are a, are a active producer of TVs and uh, TV shows and, and movies. How has that business changed? I guess you've been on a News Corp, what, five years now? How has that business changed in that time? Well, I think that um, the movie business not changed significantly. I think the biggest change in the movie business happened seven or eight years ago, which was sort of the beginnings of the collapse of the DVD business. Um, and I think that most of the, the big damage in the DVD business happened in 07, 08, 09, and there. And since then, the decline of DVDs has stabilized, and the growth of digital downloads, electronic sell-through, electronic rental, um, has increased. Not necessarily enough to make up for what, what, what Why do you think DVD sales collapsed to begin with? I think DVD sales collapsed primarily, initially, because of the economy, um, and then secondarily because it doesn't make sense, and it certainly doesn't make sense in a digital environment. But you know, one of the things I used to say to the people who work for me is, you know, if something is too good to be true, it usually is too good to be true. Right. People didn't and, expect and, that DVD business and, to exist. And the anymore. idea that you know, Americans were buying, I think the average American bought 15, 20 dollar DVDs. Um, usually watched them once. Why do you need to buy it to watch it once? Secondarily, you know, the dirty secret is probably 15 to 20% of DVDs were never opened. Um, that's too good to sustain itself, and particularly in a world where 
most movies people don't really want to own. They don't go back and watch it time and time again. And so I think it was sort of, uh, I think it was originally killed by just the recession. And right. people said, wow, this is too much money to be going down Walmart. It's an easy expense not to make anymore. Throwing four DVDs into my shopping cart. And then after that, I think, has been replaced by uh, you know, the broad adoption of electronic sell-through and digital. So Kevin Tushahara and I were, were, were arguing about it. He said, well, we've got, to, we've got to convince people that they should be buying this stuff. And at first, he was trying to make the argument that consumers want to do it. And then he was saying, well, no, really, the business needs it. Can you make an argument for beyond kids' shows, uh, family shows, uh, family movies, can you make an argument why people should own movies as opposed to getting them through Netflix? Or any other well, I, I think product. honestly, it's not up to me to make that argument because they they either want to watch it more than once or they don't. You know, if I tell them they want to watch it more than once, I'm not convinced they're going to say, "Oh, geez, thank you so much." Um, I don't think most people want to watch that many movies three, four, ten, fifteen times, with the exception of some animated movies right. and occasional comedy or you know your favorite movie of all time. But so, given that the ownership model has gone away, you don't think it's going to be replaced by digital? Does that change the way you make movies? No. No, I think it, it makes you more. Th Look, I think there was a brief period of time in there where you had to work really hard to lose money in a movie. Um, that's no longer true, but it doesn't. But basically, you should go into all these things trying not to lose right. money. Right. Uh, I mean, one thing that Hollywood's very focused on is, is making stuff that plays well in China. You've had a China focus for a long time. What have you learned about that market? Well, first of all, I think it's, it is, given the limited number of Hollywood movies that go into China, I think it's a mistake to focus just on movies that are going to play well in China because you're largely not in control of your own destiny. You know, you've got to get approved for distribution there, and only a small portion of movies end up getting approved. So. I think it would be a mistake to say we're going to focus entirely on China from the movie perspective. Um, we've asked a bunch of folks what they think about Netflix. Um, for a while, they were just doing DVDs. Then they were streaming. Now they're making their own content. How do you think about them as an, as an outlet for your stuff and or a competitor for, for, the, for eyeballs? Well, I think they, are a, they have historically been a great outlet for stuff. They, they, uh, you know, I'm very, they spent a lot of money to buy New Girl from us, so I'm, I'm happy with them for that. Um, I think the, there's an interesting question about, uh, you know, if you look at sort of the model of the cable channels, they also were historically very good markets for off-network television shows. Right. That's largely dried up and been replaced by original programming on their part. And I assume that Netflix will move in a similar direction. You know, clearly they're getting... I think, more traction out of their originals, and I think you'll see them continue to do that. And then the question is, what will that do to their buying of ordinary television shows? Um, how do I think of them as a competitor? You know, I, I don't in the sense that there are six zillion competitors. You know, that everybody's a competitor for, for eyeballs, for time, for attention, for money. And so I don't particularly, look, I have an enormous amount of respect for them as a company. You know, I think Reed, is, Reed and Ted have done a great, great job. Are you going to make stuff for them specifically? We are not making anything for them right now, but yeah, I'd be delighted to make stuff for them. No reason you wouldn't. No reason I wouldn't. Um, you look like you're having fun. Would you ever go back and take a corporate media job? If no. one opened up, there no. could be openings? No. No, look, I, I think, you know, and I've historically said that I ran, you know, I was the president of News Corp for 13 years. It was, I believe, the great job in the entertainment business, you know. At some point, everybody has a boss. I'd much rather have Rupert Murdoch as a boss than a board of directors. And I think Fox was the most dynamic and most interesting company. And so 
I think I had the great job in the, in the media business. I did it for a long time. And I left not with any dissatisfaction of the job. I loved the job and I loved Rupert. I left because I wanted to do something new. I wanted to build something of my own. I wanted to be focused on, exclusively focused on those areas of the media business, which I thought were going to grow most rapidly, which is really what we've tried to do. And you did hammer out a great deal that allowed you to use that but, as a production. Uh, well, no, and I think it was, look, that was a great luxury for us, which is it, had, it also happened to be, I believe, the premium content will be one of the fastest growing areas of the media business. So it was sort of a foundation both to start the company, start making some money, to begin to build presence. As we, you know, it's taken us longer, obviously, to build out Asia, which has been another area of focus, to build out all these digital things. But I also think that, you know, particularly over the last two years or so, we've begun to reach, look, we're still a tiny, tiny little company relative to those. But we are one of the more significant digital companies out there at this point. And, you know, that, that's exciting. It's fun. It's dynamic. Keeps you, keeps you alert. Uh, one News Corp question. You do know Rupert pretty well. Who do you think runs that company when he stops running it? Well, I think Rupert has been fairly clear that he would like to see his children. Which, which he's got a bunch. He's got a bunch. I, I, I don't know. I think it's, look, I really don't know. Um, and I'll skip back to the present tense. Um, um, on, on the video front, are you, are you interested in <laughs> buying other assets? There's a lot of stuff that seems to be on the market right now. There's a bunch of humor sites that's available. We are, um, look, I would hope that we are two things. We are an aggressive opportunistic buyer, but also a disciplined buyer. So I, I don't think there's much that's sold over the last two or three years that we haven't looked at and looked at fairly deeply. I think I've got a great team, Jesse and, and the people is a great team, and I think they've built a reputation as being thoughtful and smart. So we look at everything. We're interested in sort of thinking about everything, but I also think we're trying to be reasonably disciplined about price and whether or not we think it's worth it. We started talking about Hulu. You, you bid on that, didn't buy it. Uh, Vivo, you were kicking the tires on. Um, are there any other major big web assets that are, are potentially available? I'm, I can't think of any. I don't think there are things right now. But And then the other thing we've talked about uh, at, at this event is, is how people who make content think about distributors like Facebook, Snapchat, WhatsApp. Um, do you think about them as, as potential distributors? Do you think of them as potential competitors because they might start keeping content for themselves? We think about them, I think that, we think about them as potential distributors. In fact, we're, you know, we have a small brand of content unit that we started inside uh, full screen. And one of the early things we're doing is we're actually doing a series for Snapchat called Snappy Heroes that was announced right, about right, three right. weeks ago. So we're producing that and we're producing other things. I do think that there's a huge opportunity about to happen in the video distribution space because I think, you know, I'll say two things which may seem contradictory. It has been almost entirely a YouTube distribution right. business up till now, and I think you are going to see other players enter that marketplace. Twitter just announced, you know, their new video player. Facebook has clearly been very aggressive in video. The uh, Snapchat Discover feature, and I think it's going to be. I think two things. One is I think it's going to be a really golden age for digital video distribution. The second thing is, conversely, I don't for a moment either, I think it's fashionable to whine about YouTube, and I don't feel that way at all. I think YouTube has been a great partner of ours. They have just extraordinary reach. Um, we've built a pretty good little business with them, and look, competition's great for everybody. You Obviously, just want more options. Yeah, competition will be great for us as a, as a supplier of video content. But conversely, I also think it'll be good for YouTube. I think you see, you know, I guess, was Robert up here yep. earlier? You know, Robert's been very aggressive recently. Susan's very aggressive. And I think they're being aggressive and thoughtful about how do they react to competitors. And I believe it'll help the space. I think it'll help the quality of product. It'll certainly help content creators. 
I think Robert might be in the audience. Maybe we'll get him to ask a question. Do we have questions from you guys? If you do, step up to the microphone. We'll turn the lights on. Here's one. I had a margin question uh, for the broader industry. <laughs> if you look at um, the public media companies, pretty healthy margins there. If you think about moving those businesses online, whether you think about music or DVDs, as you mentioned, you go from high margins to low margins. Um, Netflix obviously operates at a very low margin. Um, what do you think, if, if we think of traditional media being the cable nets, the business you came from um, at 30, 40% margins, and you think of Netflix at high single digits, uh, I think a lot of the assumption is Netflix is going to move up to where the cable nets are. Um, you could argue maybe it's going the other way, but I'm curious how you think about the margin structure of, of the industry as it moves from analog to digital and, and to the various online distribution platforms. This is the internet. You're not supposed to care about margins, right? Yeah, well, I, I think it is, um, first of all, the obvious answer is I don't know, um, and, and we'll see. But, but that being said, I do think that, you know, there's no God-given decree that you're entitled to high margins. And I think one of the things that has led to higher margins in traditional media and the cable business, the broadcast business used to have extraordinary margins, the newspaper business had great margins, was distribution friction. Distribution constraint clearly helps you grow your margins. And I think that the, the disappearance of those distribution constraints, which is largely, these are broad generalizations, but largely the story with digital distribution, will, I think, compress margins. I think the issue, and it's certainly what I said repeatedly when we were starting Hulu, is, look, those are great businesses, those traditional media businesses, and they will be for a long, long time. And I think the more forward-looking ones are adding, trying to add new business models faster than the older ones may decay. Um, and I think that's not easy to do. It's, it is, look, it, it, in some ways, it's the art of managing those companies. The art of managing those companies is to figure out how do you, you can't, you know, you, you, you can't sort of, hold off and artificially defend your businesses, but you can try and maximize them on whatever part of the curve they're on. And then your other job is to try and build new businesses more rapidly than those may decay. And I think you are seeing, you know, look, I think whether it's Disney buying Maker or, or HBO announcing HBO Go available ubiquitously or CBS just now, I think you are seeing the more artful ones begin to try and address those issues. They have huge assets, huge asset, you know, huge content assets. And I think what you're hopefully playing for is more ubiquitous, distribu more ubiquitous distribution at lower margins can still lead to flat, if not higher, profits. And I think that's really the, the mix you try and play with. Question. Hi, Peter. Um, if you look at the over-the-top space right now, you essentially have like three super aggregators, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, right? And then you have sort of what you guys are doing down with Crunchyroll and Creative Bug uh, down at the other end. Do you, when you look forward and kind of the five to ten year horizon, do you think the overtop business is sort of going to coalesce around those two extremes, or do you think we're we're still waiting to see what the kind of we'll call them super niches in the middle appear? And part of the reason I ask this question is when you first started the churning group, there was rumors you were trying to do an over the top with Xbox, and a lot of people sort of thought that's what the AT&T investment was sort of helping you take on the more premium side, but not as big as Netflix. So I'm kind of curious where you, how you see that all play out. Well, I think, first of all, this notion of sort of big, broad, and then niche is frankly true about the entire media business. I think it's been, in some ways, the fundamental story of the media business over the past 25 years, which is the disappearance of the middle. You know, you've seen big hits get bigger and bigger and bigger because of the ubiquity of distribution. And then you see niche opportunities become 
sort of more fruitful because of your ability to target specific people, whether those are ad-supported or subscription-supported. And in general, we've seen the middle disappear in almost every area of the business. There's, you know, there's no middle-level magazines left. There's not, you know, no certainly no middle-level movies. There's no middle-level network television shows. And so I think that that is a broad and fairly natural trend, which is you either watch something that's of deep personal appeal to you, or you watch the big hits that everybody else is talking about, and you don't settle for stuff in the middle. That being said, I do think that it is going to be, I think that the video app space, writ large, is starting to get very crowded. You know, you look at a Roku box, you look at those things, there are so many different things, and I think less for the idea of middle-level content than more for trying to make it easy for people. I do personally believe that one of the big trends we're going to see in the years ahead is curation, because I just think there's so much choice for people, curation becomes a way who's of Who's going to, to stitch that together? Who's going to have the next, who's going to be the TV guide or whatever metaphor? Well, I think you will see, to me, I think one of the big opportunities is the combination of algorithmic curation with editorial curation. You know, so you've seen some people do some very good jobs on, on algorithmic curation. In my opinion, probably Pandora the best, which I think is an extraordinarily useful and valuable and users love it algorithmic tool. Um, and then you know, you're seeing some really interesting things, editorial curation. Uh, Jason Hirschhorn's Media Redefined, of which let me Jason's going to be pleased. It's a second shout out. And we're an investor of his, there so, so there is some self-interest. But I think that's a, a new version. Look, I think in, in a lot of ways, you know, you guys are a different version of, you know, it's, it's editorial, but it is a fair amount of curation in Recode. Um, and I think those things are extraordinarily valuable. I think one of the interesting questions is, is when do those things come together? You know, I think that Yahoo tried to play with it a little bit. Uh, um, that was a good shrug. But, but, you know, it's, I do think that it's, I think users are hungry for it. I think it is an extraordinarily complex world to try and navigate your way through all the choices. Do you think someone who's big now, like an Apple or Google or Amazon does it, or is it an outsider who figures out how to do this the right way? I, I historically think most of these things are better from an outsider perspective. You know, I think interesting things are, look, it's, you know, Pandora, I believe, has done music curation, algorithmic curation, much better than Apple ever did. And you're on the board, and right? I'm on the board, but tiny little oh. company. You know, I think you look at things like you know, Ev's company or Media Redefined or what you guys are doing, it's pretty interesting editorial curation and trying to think through how do you organize <clears throat> different editorial voices. Um, <clears throat> and easier to do, I think, as a startup. Good. It's fun. Great. Thank, Thank you, you, Peter. Appreciate it. it.